ready? to be a light to the nations, and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech olam, borei pri hagafin, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech olam. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. Now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and we pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruch the call to worship. Baruch et Aronai Hamvorach. Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Mi chamocha ba'elim Adonai Mi chamocha nedar ba'kodesh Norat ehilot o'osef ele'i 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech Haolam, Asher Natanlanu Et Derech HaYeshua BaMashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru Vene Yisrael Et Hashabbat, La Asot Et Hashabbat La Doratam Berit Olam, Vene Ovayan Vene Yisrael Oti Leolam. Kishishet yamin asa aronai et hashemayim va'et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat va'yinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Shabbat Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lionel and Ministries. Welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast. This Sabbath, uh, we are in the book of Exodus in the Torah portion called Yithro. If you are familiar with it, this is the portion where Israel is now into the base of Mount Sinai, and God's going to come down on the mountain and he's going to speak the Ten Commandments. That's the dominant thing that's within this particular Torah portion. It's the same mountain that Moses was at when he had the burning bush experience, where God had commissioned Moses to go and bring the children of Israel to that mountain to worship him there and to receive the Ten Commandments. Just to remember, just briefly... And this is the setup to the Hoftor portion that we have this week. That was a absolutely mind-bending, earth-shaking event. If you had been part of the children of Israel, you'd been standing beside Moses when this event at Mount Sinai took place. This would have been the most significant event to ever happen in your life. If you recall, God gave the instructions that no one could be on the mountain. Moses had to be, and they had to set a border to protect the people so that when God came down on the mountain with all the fire and the thunder and the smoke and so forth to give, uh, speak to the children of Israel and give the Ten Commandments, uh, th- th- this was a very powerful event uh, in which that when God spoke, the scripture tells us that the voice of God did a whole series of things. Not just the words that were said, but the voice that they heard did these things. It, it split rocks on the mountain, and rocks came tumbling down the mountain. It shook the earth. Um, it shattered trees. You know, a tree standing there, suddenly it, it's hit with a force that splinters and shatters the tree. Animals were calving and giving birth suddenly. Uh, you know, the men were, were full of fear and trembling. That's what it says of Moses. Even he was full of fear and trembling. This was a literally awesome thing that took place. It, it was, it, and, and it altered uh, significantly this whole business about how God had been dealing with our fathers, going down into Egypt, delivering them the judgments upon Egypt and, and bringing the children of Israel back. This event at Mount Sinai, God speaking, is of tremendous significance to, to the people that happened to it. And the words that he obviously spoke are every bit as profound in the scripture. They set the basis for the definition, what are the commandments of God? Now, 
in our modern day and throughout the history of, of uh, spiritual people, the church, um, Israel uh, itself and its history, there's always been those who have argued against the commandments. And they've argued in a variety of ways. One, some have just ignored them. Some have uh, misstated them. Uh, some have said, oh, well, they're the commandments, but they don't apply to us. Uh, everybody's taking issue with these commandments, this event that took place on Mount Sinai. And the measure of those who truly are faithful to God are those who keep the commandments. As the Messiah himself said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And uh, today, uh, in the modern messianic movement that we have, one of the core issues about people coming into the messianic movement under this teaching is a recognition of the validity and the veracity of these commandments. And we accept them, and we now commit ourselves to follow them and obey them. We don't take exceptions to, well, we don't do Sabbath like those Jews, blah, blah, blah. Or we don't have to keep the clean and the unclean. We don't do that. Or any of the other issues such as biblical feasts or whatever the case may be. And we have people who are proclaiming that they believe in God. And yet they claim they don't have to keep the commandments. There weren't any of those people standing at the base of Mount Sinai when God spoke. The people who experienced God speaking were totally overwhelmed. There was no theological argument with him and say, well, God, uh, you're using those commandments temporarily. You know, when the Messiah comes, uh, we won't have to follow those. That theological argument wasn't present at base of Mount Sinai. It was a earth-shaking event that took place. By the way, it's still valid today. But as I said, we have a lot of people who are um, opposed to it. In the course of my years of teaching, I have met with brethren who want to argue against the commandments and whether or not we have to keep them and, and so forth. And one of the things I have shared with them is that the children of Israel were afraid when God spoke these commandments. That's how tremendous the event was. And I said, it's, it's kind of a testimony to you if you are taking issue with the commandments why aren't you afraid when you stand up and you speak against God's commandments? They were. And I have said to some others, other teachers, I've said, you know what, I'm going to leave you with this. And that is, you need to be afraid of what you're saying about God's Ten Commandments. In fact, you need to be very afraid you know, the scripture says that in the great tribulation, God is going to speak one more time and everybody in the world is going to hear it. And in fact, in the book of Hebrews, it specifically says, yet once more will I not only shake the mountain where he spoke the Ten Commandments, I will shake the heavens as well. And he's supposed to speak from heaven. In fact, it's a part of the prophecy called the seven thunders. 
in the book of Revelation, which John was told not to write down what he heard. That's something reserved for us in the future. I can assure you that as much as God speaking the Ten Commandments on the day he did will also have a profound impact upon the people that will hear this seven thunders spoken. So with that as a backdrop, what kind of Haftor portion could we possibly have to go with it? Well, let me take you to Isaiah chapter 6. This is the Haftor portion that goes with this. And Isaiah chapter 6 is uh, Isaiah sharing his calling to become a prophet. And God gave him a vision while he was in the temple as a young man. And he saw literally the throne of God. And, and it gives to us in chapter 6 what he saw and what transpired. And basically what he saw was the throne of God from the top down. Above God at his throne is the seraphim. These are angels that have six wings. The scripture says that some cover their eyes, some cover their feet, some cover the, their hands. And, and yet you hear their voices, which they do. And one of the things that he heard the seraphim say was, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And the earth is full of his glory. A very profound proclamation. And the reason why we use this Haftor portion as a reminder of when God spoke the proclamation of the Ten Commandments is Isaiah's moment here before the presence of God, he hears a profound proclamation. And in fact, this serves as a standard. This proclamation that he, he heard serves as a standard for all of the prophets of Israel. Now, Isaiah was not the first prophet that was sent to Israel. That honor was given to actually Hosea. But Isaiah was a profound prophet that literally set a standard for all of the prophets uh, that have followed since. In great esteem is given by holy men to the call of Isaiah, as he was called. Let me read for you just a little bit more and repeat what we said. Verse 2, Isaiah chapter 6. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and the two he covered his face, two he covered his feet, and two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Right off the bat, why say the word holy, holy, holy? Well, I would submit to you is because our Heavenly Father is holy. The Son of God is holy. The Holy Spirit is holy. And to fully address the unity of God, if you're going to make a statement before that he's holy, you better say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. That is completely consistent with all the other places we find in Scripture that when we have this moment where we are addressing the very personage of God, it's always presented in a plural form. Moses at the burning bush, you know, Moses, Moses, 
put off your sandals, the ground you're on is holy. When he talked to Abraham, 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 you know, take your son, Isaac, the one you love, your only son, take him. Jacob, you know, Jacob, Jacob, it's okay, go down to Israel, or go down to Egypt, I should say. We have these multiple times where God uses this plural form, and here we have angels doing the same thing. So one of the things right off the bat, uh, by the way, I hate using that expression, but I, I got to change that because I've been using that all my life, and this is not baseball. Uh, one of the things that we take note of is the seraphim are saying something very profound about God. In fact, let me just give you the uh, shortened version of what I'm getting at. In rabbinical teaching by Torah teachers, the word yod heh vav Yahweh, Yehovah as some would pronounce, or Adonai, you know, that we use, that is not the most frequent expression that is used to try to give biblical teaching. The most common expression is the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel. Major proclamations, pronouncements that are done in the faith, such as marriages or at funerals or other different declarations, when we refer to God, we refer to him as the Holy One of Israel. And the one part ties back to the Shema. You remember, the Lord, the Lord of God, the Lord is one. So a way of repeating that is to say the Holy One of Israel. That's where this expression comes from. It's from this vision. It comes from the... the um, uh, the seraphim making this pronouncement about God. And specifically, when we respond, we are to see God as a unified one. So we don't go uh, holy, holy, holy. We see the holy one of Israel. We ad ad adhere to what the Shema has told us to do. You regard me as one. So we call him the holy one of Israel. Now, let me just tell you, if you can grasp this, this is an pro incredibly profound spiritual principle. Whereas the Ten Commandments was incredibly profound to lay out the commandments of God, this is an incredibly profound proclamation being made to Isaiah as to how God shall be referred to and, and regarded. That he's the Holy One of Israel, and the whole world is full of his glory. Um, I can tell you right now that if all of a sudden we were able to see the glory of God, it would be overwhelming. I, I seriously doubt that we'd be able to exist. It would be far more than the syllables of his voice shaking the earth and, and causing us to be fearful. Let me elaborate just a little bit further before we look at this. I want to address that there's a couple other places in Scripture where we have someone who has seen this scene that, that, uh, that uh, Isaiah saw. And that was the prophet Ezekiel. Now his perspective of seeing the throne of God was he saw it literally from the bottom up. 
Isaiah saw it from the top down. Ezekiel saw it from the bottom up. And instead of seeing seraphim and talking about that, he saw the cherubim. Now, the cherubim are different from the seraphim. They have six wings. The cherubim have four wings. And they became the thing that, uh, as Isaiah fixated on the seraphim and what they were doing and saying, uh, Ezekiel fixated and paid attention to what the cherubim were doing. And you heard of the burning wheels. Um, And the burning wheels is because the throne of God is actually pictured for us as a chariot. In fact, it's called a fiery chariot. And the Hebrew word for it is Merkabah. Um, interestingly enough, modern Israel, their main battle tank is called the Merkava tank. They're literally saying it's the fiery chariot, you know, of God that is going forth, modeled after the throne of God. And Ezekiel had this experience of dealing with the cherubim and understanding what they were doing. Now, there's a third person who had this perspective was the apostle John. And in the book of Revelation, specifically in chapters four and five, John gives us a vision of seeing the throne of God, only unlike Isaiah and Ezekiel, he saw the throne of God straight on. Isaiah from the top, Ezekiel from the bottom, but John saw it straight on. What were the dominant things that he saw before the throne of God? There were two things. He saw the Lamb of God, and he saw the 24 elders. He saw the representatives of the nation of Israel, the kingdom, and we saw the king, the lamb. The lamb that was slain is the only one who can open the seals. And so we have these three perspectives of, of the visions of God. These are tremendous things that took place. And from a spiritual standpoint, as opposed to a legal standpoint of the commandments, these have profound meanings and impact for us as well. Uh, the one, one of the things that uh, a person has to, if he's going to be a normal person in life, he has to come to terms with, there's two parts of the way we think. There's what we call the logical And then there is the other part called the intuitive. Um, Logic is, okay, these are the facts. That's what we're going to do. These are the principles. Okay, that's done. But the intuitive says, no, I have a hunch. I have a sense of something that I don't see over there. Now, the, the idea to be mature is you have to keep these in balance. And if you, um, if all of a sudden you get super logical, you literally become insane. In fact, insanity is defined as someone who is logical but has no intuitive sense. Um, and that's the reason why they go out and they repeat and they think there's going to be a different behavior or a different result from what they do. And they just keep repeating, 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 and they get the same results and they can't understand why. It's because they're t- totally locked into logic and they have no intuition. Now, you can also do it the other way. You can become so intuitive that you don't pay attention to any of the, uh, the principles. The same thing is true of our faith, brethren. 
if all I do is focus on the Torah, and all I do is focus on the commandments of God, and I don't come to terms with, let me use the term, the intuitive part of our faith, which is really the work of the Spirit of God, and we don't have in balance the Spirit along with the law, the Word, then we're going to be out of balance. And at the same time, if we ignore what is in the law, the Torah, and we just pursue the spiritual, then we will be completely out of balance. I can assure you that there will be a flock of errors that will occur in the faith. And by the way, that is exactly what we see going on in the faith. My Jewish brethren focus in on the Torah to the exclusion of the work of the Spirit of God. Some of my Christian brethren, they focus in on the Spirit of God and to the exclusion of the Torah. What's even worse is some of my Christian brethren, they focus in on John's vision of the throne and ignore Isaiah and Ezekiel's visions. And some, and, and, and of course my Jewish brethren focus in on Isaiah and Ezekiel and ignore what the Apostle John said about the throne. There's a, a disconnect, there's an imbalance that is taking place. Instead of accepting all of the evidence and being balanced about all of these things, um, air, you know, comes in. Furthermore, there's another error that takes place, and this is part of the struggle that we have in their faith. The teachers of the law can make mistakes too. Teachers about the Spirit can make mistakes too. So not only do you have to be balanced about the Word and the Spirit, uh, the Word is associated with the truth, the truth and the Spirit, but you also have to discern, is it accurate and correct what I'm being told here? Is it accurate and correct as to what I see and what is taking place spiritually? We have a lot of people, if, if this is what it says, that's it, they're legalistic, and we know that's inappropriate. We also have a lot of people over here, if they have a spiritual experience, they have something they call a vision or whatever, some intuition kicks in, they think it's literally the pronouncement of God from Mount Sinai to the exclusion of the Ten Commandments. Obviously, it's wrong. So how are we to balance this experience that we have with God, where God's reaching out to us and, and we need to respond back to him? Well, the first one is definitely Mount Sinai. The first one is God has pronounced these are the commandments, these are the rules of the kingdom. We need to know them and we need to be prepared to keep them if we're committed to him. Uh, if we believe in the God of Israel, we will do what he says. And then we have this example where Isaiah shifts and, and we have this incredible experience where God himself known. He actually shows his throne on a mountain. He actually makes himself shown to these prophets. And we learn other things about God. More things are shared with us, namely the Holy One of Israel. And that expression that comes down. Now, I want to take you to, uh, I'm sure you've heard this passage of Scripture, and it specifically is the call 
of Isaiah. And it's like a personal call to every person. Um, the Ten Commandments was given corporately to all the people. But this experience that Isaiah is going to have is highly personal for him. Let me take you to chapter 6. And uh, specifically, he says, um, after seeing the seraphim and hearing this, verse 4, And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst the people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of the hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, uh, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is... Every one of us in the faith have to have this personal experience with God. If we're, if we're going to do anything with God, we have to have this personal experience where we recognize that God is different from us. He's holy. We're not holy. We have sin. We're undone. We, we, we got a major problem here. Woe is us. And yet we see God comes and does something for us, and suddenly we're forgiven of our sins. And every person who comes to believe uh, in the Messiah goes through the same experience at a personal level. And this is what happens to Isaiah. He has this personal experience uh, with him. And by the way, let me repeat again what I'm saying. The reason why this Torah portion is read right along with the Torah portion is you got to have both of these in your life. You have to be part of the kingdom of God. And these are the rules of the kingdom. And then you have to have this personal experience with that God, that king of the whole earth, in which that you are definitely part of it at a personal level. And here is what follows for Isaiah, which is the pattern for all of us uh, from it. And that's the reason why this particular passage stands out in such a profound, personally spiritual way. And it's put on a par with the Ten Commandments being given to all of Israel. Let me continue to read for it. Uh, verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. I want you to take note, before we leave that verse, I want you to notice, and who will go for us? The word us is plural. If it had been singular, if God was just one, absolute one, it should have said, and who will go for me? But it says us. It's the plural form. That goes back to the holy, 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 the plural form of God. Whom will go for us? Literally, whom will be called and go for the Father, go for the Son, go for the Holy Spirit? Whom will go for all three? Who will go for us? So Isaiah responds. He says, here I am. Send me. All right. So we have this personal revelation. We have this personal forgiveness. We have this personal call that's in it. And now we come to these words. And he said, go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. 
keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their words, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Right off the bat, you got to ask yourself something. <laughs> God commissioned Isaiah to go out and cause people not to be able to see or hear what he's saying. What? I want you to go out so you can illuminate, so that you can explain, so you can help the people to understand. Well, that's not what he calls him to do. No, I want you to go out and I want you to make it more difficult for them to understand. I want you to make them spiritually blind and I want to make them spiritually deaf. Why? Let's read on. Verse 11, then I said, Lord, how long? Surely this is temporary. Surely what you're saying to me is temporary. Surely you have something more positive in mind. And he asks, how long do I, should I do that? And the Lord answers for it uh, by saying the following. Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. You know what he just said? I want you to go out until all the enemies of God are gone. I want you to go out until there's no more opposition to me. The only part that will be left, the seed, the root of the tree, will sprout up again. Israel, believing Israel, is referred to as the remnant. And Isaiah later goes on to say that the Messiah, the sprout that's coming up from the root of the tree, even though the tree has been cut off. And so he's really talking about an incredible message of the work of the Messiah, the incredible message of the work of redemption on the personal level. You and I, whether you realize it or not, we get born, we live in this world, we sin, we do a bunch of bad things, but we come to that moment where we say, oh my gosh, you know, I'm undone, I have sin, and you want to repent. And so what does God do? He removes your sins from you. You're cleansed from you. So what's left? Just that little tiny down at the root where God is at. And then that root gives birth to new life and a new sprout. That's personal redemption. And that's why we have this Hofto portion that goes with Yithro and the Ten Commandments. It is incredibly profound what God did at Mount Sinai. But I'm here to tell you, it's incredibly profound what God does for us, every one of us, personally, when he takes us back to the root so we can sprout in newness of life. And the Holy One of Israel is the one that does that uh, for us. So that's our portion for this Shabbat. I pray that it will be encouragement to you. Shabbat Shalom.
If you would please now turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy at chapter 3, where our Brit Hadashah portion for this week will begin. And as you open the Scripture, now let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank You for once again had the opportunity to read Your Word, Your teaching, Your instruction. We thank You for this week, for this Torah portion, for all the things that it instructs us to do and to live our lives appropriately and according to Your Word and Your instruction. We thank You, Lord, for all of Your words, all of the words of wisdom that come from Your Scripture as it edifies us, strengthens us uh, to live our lives each day uh, so that it can be honoring and glorifying to You, to your name and to your kingdom. Father, we bless you and we thank you on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is Yithro, which is, uh, comes from the name of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, in which he has the honor of having the title of this Torah portion. And also something very special about this Torah portion has possibly the most commentary about it uh, than any other portion. And that's primarily associated with the fact that our Torah portion incorporates Exodus chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments, the time in which God speaks the law uh, audibly to the children of Israel from the mountain, the Ten Commandments that many people are familiar with, aware of, even people that don't even believe in the Bible, believe in God, know of the existence of the Ten Commandments. Our Torah portion, Yithro, has three main sections to it, I should say. It's three chapters, Exodus 18, 19, and 20. The first uh, chapter has to do with Jethro giving Moses some counsel in the course of which he uh, judges amongst the people. Anytime the people have any questions or things that they are to do, uh, you know, whether something is right or wrong or somebody's mistreating one person versus another, they always brought their complaints, their issues to Moses, to which Moses had to make judgment over each particular issue. And Jethro, he sees this and he says, Moses, 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 you can't, you can't do this. You're, you're going to kill yourself. You can't, you know, preside over all these things. And he gives them the counsel of appointing judges over the people. Captains of hundreds, captains of tens, captains of thousands, whatever uh, people or somebody is capable of leading and ruling over, then you need to appoint these people to do those particular jobs, to, to be able to re judge over some of these little issues that might pop up within the community, within the camp of Israel. And this counsel comes from Jethro to Moses, and this is good counsel. This is good counsel to establish all these things and to appoint the right people to do this job. One of the great principles of this Torah portion that's, that's fascinating is this. In the Torah portion where we have the speaking of the Ten Commandments by God, we also have what appears to be man-made counsel, yet it's good counsel. It's one thing for us to learn and to teach in, a, in, in all understanding of Scripture that sometimes inspired, good counsel, knowledge, advice can be shared by a man to another man. And that's where good instruction, good advice can come from. God could have said to Moses and says, Moses, appoint for yourself judges and do these things so that you might rule over the, the people and be able to judge accordingly for every issue. But God didn't say that. God didn't give that order to Moses. That advice came from his father-in-law. And so what it does is it gives us the precedent by which that doesn't mean that just because advice might come from a man and not straight from the voice of God doesn't mean that it's wrong or that it can't be taken. And this idea and this concept that we sometimes have to judge among ourselves for various issues, various questions, 
questions that need to be answered, uh, judgments that need to be made for a community, for a family, for uh, maybe a larger than the community, for an entire city or for a country. Sometimes those judgments that need to be made in those various capacities and various venues, sometimes that can be of a sound advice from a good man, from a man that, that, that knows what he's talking about, educated. And in fact, in the, story, in the course of the story, Jethro comes and, and he, uh, some of the sages say that he actually comes and becomes a part of Israel, become, confesses his faith as a believer in the God of Israel through the course of this interaction of Jethro coming into the camp of Israel. And so this is somebody who gives this advice uh, who is brand new to the camp, brand new to the ideas of believing in God. And so then we should never, you know, pass judgment on where good advice might necessarily come from. Well, all of this, of course, was a prerequisite needed for the camp of Israel, especially before we start receiving commandments of God, because then Moses could then speak these commandments to these appointed judges, to these captains that can then share the word to the people and to help to judge among the people. All of this is all really good counsel. And we, even to the modern times, understand, yes, you've got to delegate some of this work out. So how do we know what is good qualifications for a judge, for an appointed elder, or a deacon? Well, that's why we're here in 1 Timothy at chapter 3, which is in our New Testament portion that I like to take a look at, and it directly relates to this idea of appointing judges, this counsel from Moses' father-in-law, on what we need to be looking for in certain people who do righteous judgments. And so some of these qualifications are as follows. Let me read here 1 Timothy in chapter 3. We're going to read um, almost this entire portion here, uh, this chapter. And so let's uh, continue on right here. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with the pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. But let those who first be tested, let then, uh, then let them serve as deacons, be found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husband, husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is Messiah Yeshua. 
These are qualifications specifically for people, then there's specific positions here, whether it be a bishop or a deacon, those that serve within the body, um, within whatever position is needed within a community or a congregation or a fellowship or a church, whatever it might be, that certain people need to have these qualifications. These are also somewhat reiterated also in the book of Titus, chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, some of the same qualifications as it's written, that we must... We must look for these kind of people. These kind of people are the ones that are capable of leading the household of faith, of doing the job of being a judge among the people and doing all all manner of whatever it might be to serve, to serve in ministry. These are things that have to be established for a community that is godly, that follows the words and the rule of the Lord. These are what we need to be looking for. So whenever we find ourselves in our communities forming new congregations, forming a a, a body of faith, and we in this ministry have seen it many times over, where we've seen um, home fellowships turn into congregations. We see families that that do all kinds of things as they celebrate the feasts, and then suddenly they're like, man, this is really working. I like working with you and with you and with you. And so then what we should do is we should form a congregation. And then you might bring in others to help you to lead the body. This is exactly what the children of Israel needed in the wilderness. When Moses, uh, when Moses was bringing the people out, he was doing all this judgment. This is the counsel that came from Jethro. These are words, and this is a passage of Scripture that has been used many times over, truly to judge whether somebody is a good leader or not, a good overseer, a good elder. And the, this counsel and this teaching absolutely should be done on a regular basis. You almost have to review these qualifications sometimes when you have a group of leaders that have been together for a long time. Well, then counsel comes in, certain situations come up. Sometimes a man's house falls out of order who already is in a position of leadership. We need to learn how to deal with those situations and understanding. It's time for that person to step down for maybe a period of time until the house comes back into order. Different kinds of things and bits of counsel that come here from this passage, which covers the first chapter of our Torah portion. Now let us go to uh, 1 Peter, to chapter 2, where we are going to cover the second part of our Torah portion, which is what, what I like to refer to in Exodus chapter 19 as the preamble to the Ten Commandments. The preamble that basically, um, it, it's like the wedding vows, it's like the agreement that God is going to marry Israel. That they speak over each other. In fact, God speaks of Israel in this passage in a very wonderful, powerful way where God declares who Israel is to him, calling Israel his special treasure, the apple of his eye that he has chosen from among the nations to be his people. And the people responded in that same passage with whatever the Lord has said, we will do. And it's almost like this I do statement of the covenant that's being formed between Israel and God. Now, that same sort of verbiage, that same sort of language is spoken for us here in 1 Peter, specifically in chapter 2, when it's talking about God's relationship to uh, the chosen generation. 
In verse 9 of 1 Peter 2, it says this, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. This is speaking, of course, of Israel of His people, that Israel was not a nation. They were a bunch of slaves in Egypt. And He pulls them out of that situation, and He makes them to be a nation with laws and order that He has called them out and has made them a nation of people, those that were not. And that same sort of speaking over Israel, a royal priesthood. That's one of the things also that I love pointing out about Israel, who they were to be a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests, as God says. And what that means is this, is that Israel is being, is, has a very specific purpose to its life, to what it's supposed to be, to what it's supposed to do. What does a priest do? What do the priests within a priesthood, what is their job? Their job is to be intercessors between the common man who would be bringing a sacrifice or wanting to come in to the presence of God and to be the intercessor between the common man and God. That's what the priests did. They helped to facilitate the work agreement, uh, the, the giving of sacrifices from Israel, the common man, to God. The high priest specifically served God went into the place, tended to the holy place, the holy of holies, the place where God resides, and was like a servant specifically to God as intercessors between God and the people. That is what Israel was to be to all the nations, a kingdom of priests that God has called and chosen to be the intercessors between the rest of the world, the rest of the nations. If you want to go to God, if you want to do business with God, confess your faith in God, well, guess who you go to? Go to an Israelite. The Israelites, the people of God, the chosen people of God, they know God, they serve God, they obey God. If you want to come and do the same thing, go and be a part of Israel. That's what a kingdom of priests is. And that same verbiage is given to us once again here in our New Testament portion. Here talking about here to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation. They're supposed to keep themselves holy. That's why we have the commandments. That's why we have the instructions. Especially the entire book of Leviticus is all about being holy as God is holy. Remaining holy. Israel was the one that received these instructions. They are the one who has the example that knows how to be holy. This is how God feels about His chosen people, about His love, choosing them from above all nations as a special, or sometimes the Scripture says, a peculiar treasure. It's the kind of thing that you want to, this is sort of marriage advice even, what you want to do is you want to find a spouse, somebody who loves you the way that God loves Israel. You want to be the way, the way that God sees Israel, even with all of their faults, their mistakes. You know your own faults. You know your own mistakes. But I'll tell you when you found a good spouse. You found somebody that looks at you and considers you, prefers you above all others, the way God spoke of Israel. This is the example that you follow. Once you find that person, well, then you enter into covenant with them. You marry that person. You confess your love and your marriage to them. You, um, you, you then set up all of the boundaries and the rules of how you are going to love them. The vows, you then exchange vows. 
What are you going to do? What are they going to do? What are you going to commit yourselves to doing, to follow, to maintain this covenant? What's the duration of the covenant? Till death do us part. I'll tell you this, God made a covenant with Israel and He made an everlasting covenant that lasts beyond. It wasn't just until God died, which I don't know if God can die, unless He's going to put Himself into, the form, the, into a human form, and then that human form dies, which there's an example of that happening. Or Israel. Say Israel becomes no more. Does that mean that the covenant is, is now null and void? No. It is an everlasting covenant between God and actually the descendants of Abraham. If there's still descendants of Abraham alive today, the covenant is still in effect. And it's not even about whether they're alive or dead. The covenant is everlasting. That's the covenant that God desired to enter in with Israel. Well, guess what? Now we come to Exodus 20, where the terms of the covenant, God speaking His vows of His covenant with the children of Israel, where He speaks, these are the commandments that you are to follow, that you are to do. If you love me, keep my commandments. If you desire to be in covenant with me, Keep my commandments, and these are the commandments that come. The Ten Commandments, which many of us are familiar with them, that we have the commandment of uh, God stating empirically, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought you out of the house of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We here who are Messianic teach that the very first commandment of the Ten Commandments is believe in God. Yes, he also then says, have no other gods before me, make no graven image, that we believe to associate more with the second commandment as to not commit idolatry. But ultimately, the first commandment is believe in God. That's what we are commanded to do. And every commandment, the first five commandments, in fact, as they come out, to not take the name of God in vain, to keep His Sabbath holy, and also to honor your father and mother, those are all commandments associated with our relationship to God. Specifically, if you're going to break the commandment of your love for God, to love Him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, to, then what you're going to do is you're going to break those specific commandments that are associated with God, such as committing idolatry, because you think that some other God is worthy of your praise and worship. You're going to break His Sabbath, His holy Sabbath, that has been in effect since creation, Also, the part about honoring your father and mother, that goes directly to the fact of how do you love your earthly father that you can see, and or if you hate your earthly father that you can see, then how can you ever say that you love your heavenly father that you can't see? Now, that same sort of language is in our New Testament, uh, talking about loving your brother whom you can see, or if you hate your brother that you can see, then you can't say that you love God. And so, therefore, the honoring of your father and mother are actually more associated with your love for God Himself because it's, a, it's an example, it's the, pat, it's the physical example of who God is to us. So now, let's talk about the last five commandments. This is actually a teaching that is as specific as it can possibly be that comes to us from Romans, specifically Romans chapter 13. The Apostle Paul is teaching us about the commandments of God. And here he says this in Romans 13, here at verse 8, it says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if this is any other commandment, 
all are summed up by saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That is as concise of a teaching that can ever be done when it comes to the keeping of the commandments of God. Torah, the law of Moses that comes from the Old Testament. Now, unfortunately, in the Christian faith, there has been a little bit of a misunderstanding with the idea and the concept that the commandment of love has replaced those commandments or that the commandments that Messiah spoke of saying that I give you a new commandment, love God, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those were not new commandments. In fact, those were commandments, old commandments, but we never seem to ever figure out really how to keep them as a people. We still struggle with that today. But it's not that those commandments replace the old, because what did the Messiah say? He said, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. All the law hang on those commandments, the commandment of love. And that's what the Apostle Paul is teaching here very concisely and very specifically about the last five commandments of the Ten Commandments. You know, the Ten Commandments was on two tablets. I think we can safely assume that it's like that five commandments were on one tablet and the other five were on the other tablet. It also says that they were written on both sides of the tablets, so we actually don't know what the layout was. Does that mean all ten was on each tablet If when you flipped the door? I don't know. We don't know exactly how that worked. But the idea and the concept is this, is that the last five commandments are summed up in the commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. That makes perfect sense because all of these commandments here have to do with your relationship with other people. And by the keeping of the commandments of God, you will be blessed. You will receive a great amount of blessings. Let me tell you something. If you want to find yourself in a community and want to find yourself in good standing with a community, then if you keep these specific commandments, don't murder anybody, don't steal anything, don't lie, bear false witness, don't covet what somebody else has, and specifically don't covet somebody else's wife committing adultery. If you do those five things, you will be in great standing with the community. If you want to fall out of good standing with the community, if you want to prove that you are not a very good neighbor, that you don't love your neighbor, in fact, you're going to give somebody a reason to not love you as their neighbor, why don't you do one of these things? Go steal something from them. See how your relationship lasts. See what the blessing of your freedom within that community, see how that blossoms and develops. If you go and steal something, you go lie about it, or you happen to murder somebody within the community. I guarantee you, your standing will not be very high for very long. Find yourself in prison. Maybe you'll find yourself not even in that community anymore. That's what these commandments have to do. They have to do with your relationship with others. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, you won't do these things. And if they love you, they won't do these things either. This is how we find ourselves blessed within the community of the body of faith. This is what very specifically, don't do these things, and you'll be, good. you'll be good. Paul's teaching this very, very concisely. Now, let us talk about, let's go to what the Messiah specifically said about a few of these commandments. See, we can sit here and we can say, all right, don't murder, uh, don't, don't commit adultery. These are easy things to do, right? Very easy. Never, uh, as long as you don't pick up a gun, pick up a weapon that can harm somebody, you'll probably avoid murdering somebody. Well, au contraire, says the Messiah. Because though we might think everything has to do with the physical act of committing a sin, the Messiah says something different. 
In Matthew chapter 5, we have the beginning of the very famous Sermon on the Mount, where the, the, Mount of Be the giving of the Beatitudes and the instruction of the Messiah speaking to the multitudes in Matthew uh, chapters 5, 6, and 7. And here, he gives a Torah teaching. In fact, I like to say that the Sermon on the Mount was the greatest Torah teaching that's ever been given. And what he specifically says is he addresses a couple of things having to do specifically with murder and adultery. Listen to these words. They're highlighted in red in my uh, Bible here, knowing that the Yeshua is the one who's speaking these things. Where it says this, beginning at verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. And whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar... And there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. And first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest you, your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hands you over to the officer and you, then you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. If you desire to be in good standing with the Lord, it's one of those things where it's like the commandments might be given in the order by which we are to believe in God, love God, keep specifically His commandments, His Sabbath, don't offend God by taking His name in vain, doing all these things, and then come the commandments about dealing with our neighbors, with our brothers. But really, when it comes to the keeping of the commandments, before you start to get to the point where you think you want to come into covenant with God, believing in Him, keeping His commandments, there's almost a bit of counsel coming here from the Messiah that says you almost keep these things in reverse. Don't you dare come to God to do business with God, confess your love to God, keeping his Sabbath until you've been reconciled with your physical brother who's here on earth. If you've committed these kind of sins, if you've stolen something, committed adultery, borne false witness against somebody, well, that's where somebody, uh, uh, another fellow brother, neighbor, human being, person in your fellowship, in your community, can turn you over to the authorities and say, this person has sinned. They deserve to go to prison. And it's all like, oh, but I was on my way to, to worship the Lord. <laughs> no, you're going to prison. You must first learn how to interact and reconcile issues among yourselves with your brethren within your community before you ever think that you're going to be in covenant with God, performing all the different actions of being with God. You want to bring an offering to God? You have a sacrifice? You have an animal? You're prepared to go and give to the Lord? Is everything else good back at home? Remember the qualifications I was talking about? Remember that I was talking about the appointing of, of elders and, and judges within your community so that you can work through all these little issues? Yeah, all those little issues that you're supposed to work out with, you got to get those things fixed before you're going to be within the presence of God. You're not going to bring your little, uh, your, your little arguments and issues and spats and disputes. You're not going to bring that into the house of God. 
He'll tell you to check those things at the door. Don't you dare cross that threshold in the presence of God until you've worked those things out. This is the order by which we come into the presence of God, that we follow the commandments of God. Because the Messiah here is saying this. It's like, yeah, you shall not murder, but this has more to do with what's in your heart rather than some action that you actually took. He continues on in verse 27, talking specifically about adultery. You've heard it said, in the, uh, uh, that you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, cast it from you, for it is more profitable for that one of your members perish than for you, to, for your whole body to be cast into hell. It's better for you to walk into the kingdom with one eye and one arm following after the, being holy to keeping the commandments of God than it is for you to be a complete looking person, yet you are a sinner. That's what he's saying here. That it's not just about the specific act that you have done, but it's about what you believe and feel or think in your heart that causes one to sin. These are the things that are extremely important for us to understand as believers. Because we can sit there and we can say, man, I've done that, I've done this, I've done, I've done all these things, I've, I've kept the commandments of God. But have you? You can say, I have physically never murdered somebody. Yeah, but did you have so much hatred in your heart one time for a brother or for a family member that you kind of wished them dead? Even for a fleeting moment, did that ever happen? Messiah says that's the equivalent of, keep, of committing murder in your heart. That's what we have to always look deeper than the commandments. That's why it is more than just words on a page. That's why it's more than just words on tablets of stone. That these are words and these are instructions and these are actions we have to take from our own bodies, from our own, within our heart, what we are to do before the Lord and with one another. The Messiah spoke again to somebody else about this particular thing. If you would we'll now turn to me to Matthew chapter 19, in which we have the interaction where we have a rich young ruler that comes to the Messiah and asking him about keeping the commandments and getting into the, getting into the kingdom. And he, not only has he mentioned this, this is one of, those, uh, one of those interactions that's recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, also in Luke chapter 18 and Mark chapter 10. But I'm going to read here from Matthew 19. Many of us are familiar with this instruction, but let's now read it now in context of our Torah portion here. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And the other Gospels talk about this man being a rich young ruler that's coming to him. So he said to him, the Messiah speaking, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he says to him, Which ones? Yeshua says, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's talking about those interactions that you have with other people. And it's all like, okay, you want to be in the presence of God, well, then make sure you're doing these particular things. This is reiterating again what I said before, that we almost, we keep those commandments 
dealing with our brethren before we come into the presence of God, which is what he's asking about eternal life. And the young man said to him, and he said, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? That's always one of these interesting things where it's like, again, he said this and it's like, so this guy really was that good that he's never committed any of these things, even in his heart, like Messiah was speaking about before. Mm, We don't really know exactly the answer to that. But Yeshua says to him, and Yeshua is very blunt with him, and he says, if you want to be perfect, then go sell what you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Messiah continues on as he turns to his disciples and he's teaching them. And he says, Assuredly, I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples hear this. They're astonished and they're like, well, who can be saved? And then verse 26 of Matthew 19, Messiah says, what, With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Ultimately, judgment comes to the Lord. Whether somebody says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom, ultimately God's going to be the one that invites anyone in to the in, in, into his fold, into the kingdom. God will make that judgment. As much as it's one is that that young, that rich young ruler that refused to sell his possessions, give it to the poor, and start following the Messiah. Is there a chance he's still in the kingdom? I mean, that, that, that he still, that, that the Lord, that something later on in his life, perhaps that he did do something and God still invited him into the kingdom. Well, with God, all things are possible. God's the ultimate judge of those things. But what are we to learn in the course of this story? It's not just about the specific commandments and what we do and in our interactions with others, but it also has to do with what is in our hearts. What's truly, do we have the love for our brethren? Love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, you love your neighbor as yourself. Well, they have less than you. You happen to be rich and have a great number of possessions. Are you willing to sell all of that and give it to them? Do you love them that much? Basically, the Messiah put him to the test, and right there, that last commandment he quoted to him, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Did he really love his neighbor as himself? You might say no if he was not willing to do what the Messiah said. And it also had to do with this. If you want to come and you want to follow me, then you have to do this and come and follow me. Set aside all the things of your other life and the pleasures of your life and come and commit yourself to following the words of God, submitting to the Messiah. Many of us would struggle with this same interaction. As much as some of us in hindsight would like to say that we would uh, that we would do the right thing in this particular situation. Many, I believe many of us would not. Having the possessions, having a good life, a great life, being blessed, and then being told, drop it all, sell it all. Go and now do this thing. Go, go, go walk the countryside with a traveler who has, who, who has almost nothing. Would we be able to make that decision? Would you be able to do that? Many of us would not. Mainly because in our hearts, we love the things of the world, man-made blessings and money and finances and wealth. And there's things that we seem to almost love more than the commandments of God. The Messiah spoke about this as well. My time's running short, but he also spoke in Mark chapter 7, talking about how certain people prefer the traditions of man to the commandments of God. 
As we go into next week's portion, which is all about a great deal of commandments, we'll probably talk about this a little bit more as well, in the sense of what do we truly love more than the commandments of God? There's a great number of things that we as men love more than God. We love our traditions. We love our money. We love good food. We love all of these things that when it really comes down to it, would we give up all of those things to follow after God? Be careful before you answer that in your mind and in your heart. Because we ourselves, we, we are flawed in this, in, in this aspect. Of course, when you're sitting here in a scripture, in a Bible study, and listening to a, to, to a sermon, you know, you're, you're nodding your head and you're like, yes, of course, oh yeah, uh, that rich young man, he had no idea what he's talking about. Of course he should have sold it all. But then we get into our day-to-day lives and we, uh, you know, when we close the Bible and we put it on the shelf, when we, you know, put it away in our, in, in our knapsack and, and we don't have the Bible in front of us and then we're going about our day-to-day lives and everything that we do, do those words resonate with us in our hearts and in our minds? Or do we get caught up in, the, in what we have and, and, and the money and the food and, and the joys of the world and the blessings? Of course we do. This is where we have to know, where, where the, it's a good thing that the Lord judges what's in our hearts rather than the actions that we've committed in our lives. Because if God was fair, then none of us would make it to the kingdom. With all the sins that we've committed, with all the actions that we've taken, none of us would, would, would fulfill the qualifications of what's necessary to come into the kingdom if God was fair and if God was holding the line. Ultimately, God looks at our hearts. And he's full of grace and with mercy, but he's also just. And all of these things, we have to come to terms and reconcile that we are not in control of what our eternal judgment is. That belongs to the Lord. Are we really ever going to be, is anyone of us really qualified to enter into the kingdom? Of course not. It'd be impossible for one person to be qualified to enter into the kingdom, to truly be in the presence of God, who is holy, who is righteous, who is pure, and we are not. It's a good thing the Lord said that with men, these things are impossible. With God, things are possible. That's why we submit to Him, His word, His instruction, His commandments, what He has said to us. Listen to the words when He has said, I've called you out of the nations. You are a special, peculiar treasure to me. And just let the love of God resonate with the fact of how He cares for us. And then we must, with our hearts and our minds, all align to to do the very best by trying to obey Him with all of our heart and all of our soul. Do we do it perfectly? No, we don't. We mess up all the time. But the Lord looks at our hearts, and He is the ultimate judge of those things. We keep the commandments of God to receive great numbers of blessings, blessings with our brethren and blessings that come from God. Ultimately, that eternal life, that eternal thing that we're, that we're seeking after, that present with God, that's in His hands. We need to show that we love God with all of our heart, with all of our souls, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and that it's truly it's what's in our heart that counts and not every action that was taken. Because we can sit there and we can think our actions actually count for something when what was unclean that was in our heart is actually the thing that's going to be our undoing. So let us look at our hearts this week. Let us look and see, are the commandments of God written on our hearts? Do we love God with all of our heart? Do we understand that it's more than just specifically what the commandments say, 
But it's deeper than that. As the Messiah said, you've heard it said, don't murder. But I say, this is what it is all about. We need to do some self-examination as we read the words of these commandments and commit our lives to obey them because that is what God has called us to do. If we are going to be a part of Israel, then we must associate with the covenant that God made with Israel and keep the terms of the covenant. And that would be believing and obeying the commandments of God. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this instruction, Lord. We thank you for this Torah portion. We thank you, Lord, for the Ten Commandments and for the covenant that you made with Israel, for giving a means by which we can come into your presence, Lord, that we can have blessings and instructions, Lord, on how to interact with one another and to have peace and blessings and prosperity within our fellowships and in our communities. Father, write these commandments on our hearts. May our, may our human and our, our fleshly desires, Lord, be set aside. The temptation to sin, to steal, to lie, to take something or to want something that is not ours, Father. Father, may, you, may those commandments be written on our hearts that we can be even avoid the appearance of evil in the course of our lives, Lord. We love you, we bless you, and we thank you, Lord. We confess our faith in you. Help us, Lord, to keep your commandments better, your instructions, to follow them and obey them. For we love you and we love you alone, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for your instructions and everything that you've done and the blessings you've given to us, Lord. Father, we are humbled by you choosing us from among all peoples, Lord, for sharing your love and your grace with us. We thank you, Lord, for that. We bless you on this Sabbath day. It's in your Son, Yeshua, that we pray all of these things. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.